I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's guest is the remarkable Tim Ferriss. Many of you know him as the author of five New York Times number one bestsellers, including, of course, The 4-Hour Work Week. People sometimes refer to him as the Oprah of audio because his podcast has been downloaded more than 500 million times. He's also got the angel investor golden touch with stakes in Uber, Facebook, Shopify, Duolingo, and Alibaba. But this episode isn't completely feel-good pixie dust and unicorns. We delve into heavy topics such as depression and suicide. Tim also explains the role of physical exercise in his well-being, why he doesn't use social media anymore, and how to grow a podcast. After the recording, I came to believe that Tim Ferriss is Ariana Huffington with a badass attitude. We did geek out about John McPhee after we discovered our mutual admiration for his work. I know this is off-topic, but after you listen to this episode, do yourself a favor and read any of John McPhee's books. Be forewarned, Tim drops a few F-bombs in the fine, remarkable people tradition of Margaret Atwood. Also, the interview got so hot, a siren went off. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands, and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. 1. Taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. 2. Taking notes while being briefed about a speaking gig. 3. Drafting the structure of keynote speeches. 4. Storing manuals for all the gizmos that I buy. 5. Roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds. 6. Wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. And now, here's the remarkable Tim Ferriss. I am on uh, undisclosed location farm uh on the on the east coast so i am outside of cities we're gonna have some exciting sounds in the background because at <laughs> one o'clock the the air siren goes off from the fire department but that'll end in a second i like it but we couldn't arrange for better b-roll than that <laughs> <laughs> exactly tim ferris is in the house <laughs> Yes, sir. With the siren. <laughs> Go! <laughs> Is that it? That's the whole siren? That's it. Just one. Oh, man. Just one, just one, just one screech. I'm glad we timed that perfectly. We, we couldn't have planned that better. I'd like to first take you back to high school of all times. And oh, I what? want you to tell me about the impact of your year of exchange student in japan it changed everything it changed everything for me i had not spent any time outside of the u.s prior to that i was born and raised on long island very much confined to a tiny tiny geography and i transferred to a different school about halfway through high school or towards the end of of sophomore year 
I had assumed I was bad at Spanish or concluded I was bad at Spanish. I had some new friends who were in the Japanese class, so I decided to take Japanese. I was also more interested in the culture. And six months or nine months later, I was on my way to Tokyo. I landed in Tokyo. It took me about a month just to accept that I was in Japan. I would wake up every morning and go, I'm in Japan. I'm in Japan. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. But it taught me so much. It taught me that I could be somewhat self-sufficient and survive and ultimately thrive. There were other exchange students and I was the only one who lasted a year, which which was in question at points. I thought I would go back. It was very difficult because I anticipated that it would be me in Japan learning Japanese through Japanese classes. And in my head, Japanese classes meant Japanese language classes, but that's not what happened. I showed up, they gave me a school uniform, and then I was in world history, calculus, regular high school curriculum in Japanese. So I didn't understand really? a, damn, a damn thing. But I have a deep affinity for Japanese culture. I'm still in touch with my host family from when I was 15. So I'm still close to my host family, 43 now. Yeah. And uh, a lot of my friends from Japan will say to me, they'll be like, Oi, Timu, omai nihonjin da yo. No, this be, they, they think that I have some <laughs> Japanese-ness. But coming back from that, I also realized how much of the rules that we follow in the U.S., as an example, anywhere, are kind of arbitrary, right? Which side of the street you drive on, how you shower, right? I mean, in Japan, it's a whole different thing. The whole sequence of events is totally different with showering and bathing and so on. Like, you don't get into the, the ohuro with a bar of soap. That's a big no-no, right? So just the, the fact that things could be so different and work just as well, if not better, was a huge eye-opener for me. And I think that affected everything that I did afterwards. You also mentioned that you went through a dark time, quote unquote, yeah. in college. What was that dark time? What happened? Well, I, well, I suffered from extended bouts of depression starting in the early teens. And in college, that got particularly bad, which, is, it, which in, in retrospect is pretty common. A lot of things get magnified in college. Schizophrenia, for instance, is usually people begin to manifest symptoms of schizophrenia, which I didn't. It wasn't schizophrenia, but in the kind of mid-20s to late-20s. And so I almost killed myself in 1999. I mean, it, it got that close. I was in planning. Like, I had a whole plan for it. And the only reason that I didn't was that the book I had reserved at the library, I was taken a year away from school, but I reserved a book at Firestone Library which was about suicide. And I forgot to change my mailing address at the registrar. So I was living off campus, but the postcard that said, your book on suicide has arrived, went home to my parents. So I got a call from my mom and that sort of snapped me out of the spell. But wow, in this, in this day and age, if it had been right now, I would, I would have terminated myself, right? Because it would have been email or something else. So that was the darkest and it's it's a lot it's a lot to discuss but that that was certainly the darkest period but a lot has changed. How did you work through it? Exercise was the big constant. So I I what I did after that is I found a boxing gym in Trenton which is a pretty rough neighborhood uh, depending on where you are. Found a boxing gym in Trenton and went there and just got out of my head by getting into my body, basically. 
that that was that was the the first key and the second key was realizing that if you inflict pain on yourself especially in the form of suicide i mean which might be short-lived pain but nonetheless it's like taking the the hurt that you're feeling multiplying it by 10 and like converting it into like a suicide vest and just walking into a room of the people you care most about and blowing yourself up like there is a wide and powerful impact on those you care about or at the very least those people who care about you it's not just isolated to your own experience so that's that's something i think that also philosophically was important for me to to try to incorporate into my life and the pattern interrupt though was exercise for sure that's a great plug for exercise i know i i surfed between two and four hours a day. It's the only thing that's keeping me sane right now. So uh, Yeah, totally. But un yeah. unlike you, I didn't master surfing in four hours or four days <laughs> or four weeks. <laughs> it, it takes longer. Surfing takes longer. Yeah. I haven't mastered surfing yeah. either. The the there's a there's a really good book called Spark on the some of the neuro neurological effects and just biochemical effects of exercise on brain drive neurotrophic factor and things like that. So the effects of exercise, not just on learning, but really brain health are, are remarkable. And that book covers a lot of ground spark. How did the four hour work week book come to be? Yeah, the four hour work week, the, the blessing and the curse that is that title, that book came to be, because around 2003, I was asked to guest lecture at Princeton, in where I went to undergrad, in a class called High Tech Entrepreneurship. And the, the professor had been a real critical mentor to me, Professor Ed Shao, Z-S-C-H-A-U. A fascinating guy. He'd been he he'd been a, a congressman, a competitive figure skater. Took a couple a couple of companies public. Was was I think the first or one of the first computer science professors at Stanford. I mean, the guy just did everything. And I came back and talked about bootstrapping entrepreneurship because most of his guest speakers were venture capitalists or people who had built venture backed companies. And doing it with your personal savings and really scrapping is different. It's just a different, it's a different journey. And so I came back and talked about that. And around 2004 or five, the content of the lecture, I was, I was giving it once a year, maybe twice a year. And the content kind of shifted to what I later called lifestyle design, right? So talking about beginning with the end in mind. So rather than trying to win this race, compete, and then figure out what's left over, which is your life, like what, what if we started with the end in mind and work backwards? What would it look like? Because my own thinking and decision-making was changing over that period of time. And I, I left for a couple of years or about 18 months to travel around the world because I had automated my business at that point and came back and I had this huge stack of notes. And Princeton students can be pretty snobby and pompous and smug. It's and look, I'm sure I've been those things too. But like at a place like Princeton or Harvard or any of these kind of blue chips, you get a fair amount of of smug behavior. And I would always send this feedback form via email through Ed, the professor to students asking for their comments and feedback. And one kid sent this feedback, could have been older than me. I mean, he was, there were graduate students in the class too. And the, the comment was something like, 
I don't understand why you're teaching a class of like 40 undergrads and grad students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? And I, th- I don't think it was a serious recommendation. <laughs> I think it was yeah. a fuck you, right? I don't think it was a serious <laughs> recommendation. But the but that stuck in my head and I had really bad insomnia at the time. So I would wake up in the middle of the night and like jot down ideas for chapter titles and stuff like that. I then reached out to a couple of friends who had been authors and one of them was like, yeah, you should totally write a book, like without question. And I, I, I didn't, I had been traumatized by my senior thesis at Princeton, which everyone has to write. I didn't want actually to write a book. I wanted someone to just say, no, you shouldn't write a book. And he introduced me to a bunch of folks and everybody turned me down in terms of agents, except for one guy, Steve Hanselman, who ended up becoming my agent. He had just moved from being an editor to an agent. Then pitched the book to, I don't know, whatever, 29 publishers, got turned down by all of them except for one, which was at the end, and that was Crown, then Crown, they've changed their name, within Random House. And they they bought it for you know bargain basement pricing, split into five installments, which doesn't matter. Like, if your book does well, the advance doesn't matter. So I was uh, very, very lucky. I mean, I don't know what kind of lightning got put in the bottle for that thing, but... It was the right timing, right place. I was in Silicon Valley. Techies seemed to grab onto it, sort of the getting things done demographic. And that put me on the map to the extent that I've ever been on the map, I suppose. So after that, it's uh, to infinity and beyond. That's the to, to, to infinity and beyond. I mean, yeah, to infinity and beyond. The, the four hour shtick stuck around and it's going to stick around forever but i did the four hour shtick for a few other subjects i think one key decision that came not too long after the four hour work week was deciding to do the four hour body now that is not an obvious next book uh because 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 even though it has the four hour the four hour jersey is still in play on the court I, I knew that there would be a lot of pressure to do the three-hour work week and the four-hour work week for you know single moms and the four-hour work week for whatever Christians and the four-hour work week for you, you could just franchise the shit out of it and that there would be that pressure internal and external and so I wanted to I knew that I could always come back and do that that option would remain but if I if I took advantage of it in two thousand eight. 2009, so one or two years after the four-hour work week came out, that I would paint myself into that corner and I would kind of have to be the work week guy forever. So I was like, well, if I'm going to take a risk, this is actually a really good time to get it. As long as I get paid in a larger advance because I didn't get paid anything (laughs) for the first one, then let me take the payday, but do something in a totally different area. And if it works, I will have the confidence to explore other areas. But if I, if I stick with the crutch of what has been successful once, I could be dooming myself to feel constrained to that forever. Uh, so that was a really important decision. But are you, are you saying that the four-hour body was far enough away from the concept of the work week so that it was a stretch? Yeah, I'm saying that if, if the okay. four-hour thing, so if it, rather than be a business author, right, which is what I was considered okay. when the four-hour work week came out, if yes. I could be someone whose readers follow him, in this case, for a way of thinking about different subjects, kind of like Malcolm Gladwell, let's just say, as mm-hmm. an example, 
or even a Michael Lewis. I mean, they're very different writers, but they, mm-hmm. I mean, or John McPhee, right? John McPhee can write a book on oranges and people are like, great, I'll read a book on oranges, right? Or, or tennis. On, or tennis. And then they'll read a book on tennis, yeah. right? They, they're, or- they're following his thinking, not necessarily the subject matter. But there are many. So that was, to me, sort of a hypothesis worth testing. Like, could I, could I make it work in another genre completely? Different part of the bookstore. At that, at that time, parts of the bookstore mattered. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you read John McPhee's book about the birch, canoe, birch bark canoe uh, guy? The, yeah, the, the bark canoe. Sure. Yes, I did. Oh, man. I love John McPhee. Yeah, yeah he's great. Yeah. And the, the tennis, <laughs> you mentioned tennis. I, I yes. Lesson, levels of the game. If people want to read a short McPhee book, levels of the game is absolutely incredible and if you prefer basketball you could read a sense of where you are yeah the, yeah, the bill bradley book right yeah i mean they're both just amazing and yeah, you'll, you'll get okay. an appreciation for why why people feel the way they do about john mcphee yeah so so how has the pandemic and all its ancillary changes how has that affected if it has affected your thinking of the four-hour work week and productivity uh, that's a good question. Nobody's nobody's asked me about that. So I view the four hour work my my views on the four hour work week and my views on productivity may be viewed as two different buckets. So I would say that the four hour work week, in a sense, the trends and the convergence of trends that are described in the four hour work week have been accelerated a thousandfold mm-hmm. in terms of remote work, distributed work. Right, it's everything has been. Uh, accelerated. So the trends that were already in motion, which were just just beginning to gain traction in 2007, where like Elance was, was a platform that we would talk a lot about and so on. This is before people had Zoom. This is before people had Fiverr. This is before people had 99designs. Well, 99designs might have just been getting started, but this was early days. The infrastructure didn't really exist. And AWS, right, probably didn't exist or it was in its infancy, right? So rentable infrastructure for startups and also just the ability to work in a distributed fashion was hamstrung in a a lot of cases. That's changed. So I think the the ethos and the trends described in the four-hour work week, I still stand by completely. So I I do think that the, the, the principles still apply more than ever. Some of what I wrote in that book, I mean, I'm 43 now, I was 29 when I wrote it, or 28. I mean, some of it makes me cringe, right? Or you're just like, oh, Jesus. Like, <laughs> of course, of course it makes me cringe. And I've been asked by the publisher to go back and revise it, and I don't want to fuck with it because yeah. it, it, it really struck such a chord with people that I feel like the going back and stepping on the butterfly is a bad idea. So, so I've, I've left it alone. The, on the productivity side, I, what, has, what has become very present for me in the pandemic, because I've, I've struggled quite a lot, as I think a lot of people have, or as I know a lot of people have. And certainly my struggles, fortunately, because I'm in a, a position of privilege and and have just ended up where I am, have not been existential, right? They're not figuring out food or rent or any of these basic necessities. And so many people struggle with that. My, some of my family members have, have struggled with this and been laid off from service jobs, for instance. 
my struggles have been psychological and emotional. And I think that when it is easy to busy yourself with going to the office, staying at the office late, working, and I mean, I'm not staying at an office. I've, I've always been remote, but the point being when it when it's harder to bs yourself into believing that you're doing a million things and that all of those things are important you end up sitting with yourself in the case of quarantine at home with your significant other and if if there is stuff that has been safely kind of bubbling beneath the surface for you and your significant other for you personally i i think all of it has been sort of pulled up to visibility, at least for me, within uh, the context of quarantine. So productivity, like productivity is not the end all be all, right? Because you can be really productive doing something unimportant, right? You can produce a lot that is not of great value, or you could be focused on the wrong things and still do stupid things very efficiently right and so it's 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 reinforced for me the importance of having strong whys in place understanding the 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 core drivers of why you are spending as much time and energy as you are and the things you're spending time and energy on and i'd say secondly the importance for me of some degree of self-compassion Right? Because as soon as quarantine hit, there were these stories of Isaac Newton and and other people having the most productive years of their lives, creating their magnum opus while in a cottage in the in the you know, British countryside or whatever. And that was my bar. I was like, okay, that's what I need to do. And I don't I don't think I've been Isaac Newton. I really don't. I mean, I think I've been most of the time. I think I've been kind of a fucking mess. Pardon my French. <laughs> But it's, it's, and just being okay with that and allowing it to be there instead of trying to not feel things I don't want to feel. Productivity is a, it's sort of a, a morally and impact agnostic filter. Mm-hmm. And the why is incredibly important. So my, my, my reasons for doing things and the why has become even more than it was before, which it was a precursor to trying to maximize effectiveness or efficiency during quarantine. Okay. So, Tim, how do you define yourself today? What, what do you say you are? That's a damn fine question. I, <laughs> I, I don't think I have a great answer to this. What I would usually say, it really depends on who's asking, because sometimes it's, it's just not even a conversation that I want to have. But if it's, if it's just a pleasantry, then I'll give one answer, right? No, this is like, Guy Kawasaki's podcast. Oh, it's, it's you asking me. It's you <laughs> yeah, asking me. I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, I would, say, I would say that I'm a human guinea pig. I just try a lot of stuff. And I'm sort of the first line of defense for my listeners or my readers. That's how I view it. So if there is, if there is a problem that it's it's very similar to to the the entrepreneurship in my life experience where it's like okay i have a problem why do i know i have a problem because i'm cobbling together some half-assed solution 
to something that doesn't really have an off the shelf uh, ready answer. And I'm like, okay, this is stupid. Let me see if I can do a bunch of homework on this, test it a lot, throw a ton against the wall, treat myself as the human guinea pig, and then I'll try those 100 things. And if 10 of them work and two of them really work, then great. Then I'll share that with my audience. Uh, and therefore, while I'm creating stuff for my listeners or readers, I'm also scratching a very personal itch of some type. I mean, that's always been what I do. So if I were to shorten that, I would just say human guinea pig. Alternatively, I could say I'm a podcaster and sometimes writer. But well, I'm curious because I am a writer and sometimes podcaster. But <laughs> if I had to start today, it's not clear to me I would write another book. Yeah. I, I think that podcasting is much more powerful than authoring a book. What do you think? I think they're powerful in different ways. I think that podcasting and, and they're, they're powerful for different ways, the explanations of which aren't totally clear to me. So for instance, podcasting, each episode of my podcast and each episode of your podcast, I would, I would have to imagine, I mean, they, they hit big numbers. And so you, you, at least for me, I sit back and I'm like, why spend years writing a book exactly <laughs> when i can prototype and get this stuff out so much so much more quickly and what i've found is that the the half-life of the stickiness of a book if if it if it works is just longer than a podcast so the podcast is it's not as ephemeral as radio because at least historically radio appears and then it disappears, right? It's just like a golf ball in a river going past. Podcasts are different because there is a record. You can go back and listen to them multiple times. They're available. But there's still an incredible power in text. I, I don't know if that'll change. It's true also in comparison to video. But the the price you have to pay as an author is just so high that podcasts are at the very least a great way to put off writing uh, I, th I think i've I, I think i've i think i've used i think i've i think i've used them in that way myself quite a lot i mean i would make the argument for your case that i doubt that 500 million people have read your books but 500 million downloads have occurred or something like that of your podcast yeah. right and so yeah. And the beauty for me of podcasting is not just the immediacy, because I don't know about you, it takes from the time I start to the time I end the book, it's a year and a half or two years, and I know the day it ships, it's wrong. Imagine if you wrote a book about education, the future of education, and it's coming out right now, and you wrote it a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> you might yeah, get thrown that book away. And the other beautiful thing about podcasts is that you can sell 52 sponsorships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you get you get some reinforcement along the way instead of yeah. sitting in your in your bedroom wondering if this thing's going to turn out well a year, a year or two later or three year, years later so there there's definitely positive feedback both from listeners and some like market validation or at least personal validation from sponsors along the way which which on one hand is like such it's so appealing and i think there's also I think it's, uh, to quote Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, sometimes it's an opportunity to be seized and sometimes it's a temptation to be resisted, right? It's very, sedu it's seductive. So I, I, try, to, I try to keep that in mind 
Uh, but I do enjoy the podcast. I mean, the podcasting is, especially in the lazy way that I do it, it's hard to, it's, it's hard for me not to enjoy it. Yeah, and I don't know how you do it, but podcasting has kind of taken over my life. And as I look back on my career, and I've written 15 books, and I don't know, given thousands of speeches, I think my podcast is the best work I've ever done, and mm. maybe the most underappreciated at the same yeah. time. So I'm trying to rectify that. Do you have to deal, and how do you deal, with skeptics? So a, mm. I'll use my example. So a skeptic yep. would say, you know, guy, and like, 30 years ago, you worked for Steve Jobs, you, you got on a tsunami, and you rode that thing, and for the last 30 years, you've been talking about Macintosh evangelism. What have you done lately? Like, what? Yeah. why should I read your book or listen to your podcast? You're just a one-trick yeah. pony, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so have you ever dealt with people who say that, and, you know, like, you're just a guru, you don't really do anything kind of thing? I get all sorts of skeptics, and, uh, yeah. I mean, skeptic would be... On the polite side, I get some. <laughs> I, I get some very aggressive. I get some very aggressive detractors, and it depends on the nature of the criticism. I, I try. I don't want to label all critics haters, which is a very natural. I'm not saying that's what you do, but a lot of people are like, ah, oh, they're just haters. <laughs> don't listen to them, which I think can can create a blind spot when you're getting critical feedback that could be valuable. So I, I try to listen if the emotional tone isn't just hyper aggressive, which it can be, right? So if the tone is just fuck you from the outset, then there's, I just don't have a conversation. And generally, if they're like, here's my accusation, what do you have to say? I'm just like, well, that's, you know, I'm perfectly willing to accept that you're right. Like let's let's just let's let's just let's just let's just accept that you're right. Well done. You've 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 deduced it, Sherlock Holmes. Pass the salt, please. I could use some salt on my salad. And I just I don't I try not to take the bait if it's just looking for a fight. Like if it's just pugilism and they want to have like a dance of sophistry and try to defeat me because they had a law degree they never used, which is very common, right? Like you get these folks who had a law degree and they just want to bash heads with somebody over dinner to show how smart they are. Then I'm like, yeah, oh, I'm stupid. Look, my brain's slow. I'm from Long Island. You're going to wipe the floor with me. Like, let's just have dessert and chill the fuck out. It's sort of cheesy to use the, I think it's the Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena and so on. But it's like, I really try to focus on feedback from operators of some type, right? Like people who are actually getting their hands dirty and risking something. Right? Nothing kind of makes me chuckle more than a journalist who has made a career of kind of taking cheap shots at people or being super snarky. And then they publish a book and they have to face like the reality of rejection mm -hmm. and difficulty and criticism and they fucking can't handle it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just like, Ooh, tough, <laughs> tough, tough rub on that one. Yeah. It's like, you should, you should really make sure that you can take it if you're going to dish it out. And I don't have a lot of time for those folks. I, I also, I think early on went looking for feedback and would obsess over the negative stuff. And I've had all of, all of the social apps deleted from my phone for months now. I, I don't go looking what? for it anymore. I, I, I don't want to speak for everybody else, but like if I go on, let's say Twitter, and I'm looking at, at replies, I could see 99 replies that are 
incredibly life affirming and supportive mm-hmm. and one that's just like <laughs> You're a short, you're a bald charlatan and you should crawl back into the hole you came from, you know, hashtag four hour donkey or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, that fucking God, that fucking guy. And then like that would bother me for, you know, an hour. It's just such such a piss poor use of energy. And to come back to productivity just briefly, you know, I think a lot more about energy management these days than time management, certainly like energy it's like it doesn't matter how much time you have if you don't have the energetic resources to apply to projects within those windows of time so anything that and look i'm not getting any younger right it's like i'm not it's it's like energy energy is at a premium for me and i expect that's going to continue to be the case so yeah i I don't i solicit feedback actively from people i respect who i know are going to be straight shooters right so that could be in the case of some of my writing or other things, like Brian Koppelman, the, the, the co-creator of Billions, who co-wrote Rounders and many, many, many other movies, or it could be Seth Godin, or like people who I know don't give a flying fuck about making me feel good for the sake of making me feel good. If, I, if I'm asking yeah. them for feedback, right? Sorry if this, I don't know. Am I allowed to curse on this show? I should have asked ahead of time. Why not? Why not? <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this is family programming. You can put a warning well, in the intro. But the, the first person to ever drop the F word on my podcast was Margaret Atwood. So I figured you're in good company. <laughs> I mean, Sweet. seriously. Sweet. If that can be the association that people have, me and Margaret Atwood, yeah. then Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That is good company to be in. You want me to tell you the story of how that came to be? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I was interviewing Margaret Atwood for this podcast, and I asked her about her her method of writing, her technique. Was she writing in you know a fountain pen on parchment, or was she using a MacBook and Word? And so she explained it. And I said, so you know, what's your relationship with editors? And she said, well, basically, you know, I write my book and and I seek feedback from people who are like the characters in my book. Mm-hmm. And then she says, so guy, I once wrote a book and there was this young male and I sent him the manuscript and he said, Margaret, we don't say what in fuck. We say what the fuck. So that's why I changed my manuscript. <laughs> so, I, I, can it get any better than that? <laughs> that's great. That's really yeah. good. <laughs> okay, so I'm uh, a few lighter, quicker questions. So your favorite books? Favorite books. Dune, Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. Zorba the Greek. Those would be a few. Okay. I don't see any nonfiction in there, or Seneca, I guess. I mean, I don't see uh, the effective executive, or I don't see, you know, the innovative dilemma. The effective executive I would put up there as well. Yeah, I read a lot. So it's sort of, there's a recency bias. As far as as fiction, little big, little comma big would be very, very high up there. Hard to read, but very, very good book. In terms of nonfiction, The Effective Executive, certainly the Seneca letters that I mentioned, you can find it in public domain. It's the moral letters to Lucilius or Lucilius, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I've read so much nonfiction in my life. I mean, certainly The 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch, K-O-C-H, I think is excellent. Are you a Bob Cialdini fan? I am. Yeah, I am. I haven't. I read his stuff very, very, very early in my 
entrepreneurial journey, and I found it really helpful for thinking about ad copy and positioning and stuff like that. I am a fan of his for sure. Favorite podcasts. Favorite podcasts. Favorite podcasts. Hardcore history is probably at the very top of the list. So Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Start with the Wrath of Khan, which is Genghis Khan, the story of otherwise known as Genghis Khan. It's just <laughs> tremendous. I mean, the fact that Dan produces a podcast, one episode every few months that is as popular as it is, is so gratifying and life affirming to me because we are moving in a direction right now where it's like everything should be true crime. Everything should be this, like listen to the market, right? It's listen to the market. And that grosses me out because it's just going to become what we see everywhere else. I mean, you're going to have these, a handful of genres that get a lot of clicks and listens and no one in their right mind would have ever, if Dan Carlin came to one of the big companies now and said, this is the show I'm thinking about doing, right? Like four hour episodes, in multiple part series, and I'll put out one every few months, no one would have said yes. And I would say that's, that's top of my list for sure. What's your tech setup? My tech setup, pretty, pretty basic MacBook pro, a roost laptop stand normally, and then Bluetooth keyboard and trackpad or mouse. That's it. I keep it basic. I... Is that a Yeti mic? This is not, I'm used to saying ATR 2100, but it's a newer model. This is an Audio-Technica ATR 100X, I want to say, which is a USB-C mic. Yeah. And I use this for everything. And is this how you would conduct your podcast interview? Same setup? Yep. It's exactly yeah. what I would do. And yeah, I don't have a studio. I have a, the back of a restaurant or an attic or an airplane lobby or airport lobby. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very expedient about the whole thing. What do you want your epitaph to say? Epitaph. Uh, you know, teacher who created students better than he was. Probably something like that. Okay. I love it. I love it. Uh, what is your procedure in the morning? My procedure. My procedure in the morning is right now. It sometimes changes, but right now I wake up. I sync my aura ring with my phone to look at my sleep data. Then I use a device called CoreSense, C-O-R Sense, which is the hardware to take another HRV, heart rate variability reading, using an app called Elite HRV. Uh, so I'm tracking both of those, doing a bunch of heart rate stuff right now. Then go downstairs. I heat water to 180 degrees and make my tea, which this morning was actually some yerba mate, powdered yerba mate, so instantized, plus uh, layered superfood creamer, unsweetened, so it's sort of like powdered coconut oil, basically, or coconut milk, and it gives, gives you some MCTs to keep your brain doing something functional. And... Uh, Put that in a Yeti, in a Yeti Rumbler, which will keep it. I think it's a Rumbler, some Rambler maybe, which will keep it hot for a couple of hours. Then I sit and I do twenty minutes of I do twenty minutes of breathing. So I do twenty minutes of breath work, which is using an, an app called Breathe, which is 
pretty uh, pretty or might be awesome breathing something very basic it's a circle that expands and contracts and i do breath work for 20 minutes and then i'm off to the races i'll usually take a walk outside with my my pooch as well i've got my dog right next to me now as we record also <laughs> so clearly you don't wake up and immediately start checking email and you said you deleted all your social media yeah i got rid of all my social on my phone so i definitely don't check social on the phone so you're way ahead of the social dilemma. If you saw that movie yet, <laughs> I've actually just watched. I just watched uh, about three quarters of it last night. Yeah, yeah. scary. What did and you, also what did you think? Yeah, sense. yeah. I'm only three quarters into it. I thought it was good. I've I've interviewed Tristan Harris, and yeah. I'm aware, acutely aware of a lot of the issues. I think I'm only three quarters of the way into it, so it paints a dark picture. Certainly, no and kidding. it's yeah, it's a dark picture, and uh, yeah, I mean, if if you think you're going to outgun, if you think you're going to outgun billions of dollars and teams of hundreds of data scientists and engineers who are trying to capture your attention, you're really bringing a knife to a gunfight. So, so you literally, I, I'm, I'm, I know, I'm returning to this stuff. You literally, you have no social media apps on your phone. I deleted all of them. Uh, Facebook is on here, but I don't use it. It's been asking me to update. Yeah. I have, I have no. Let me just take a look. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any social media apps on my phone, which is great. Also, because if friends send me, which happens all the time, friends will send me links to stuff on social, and I'll go to it and say on Instagram, it'll, it'll prompt you to download the app, and you can basically only go in one layer before it blocks you. Right? You can't mm -hmm. scroll and go to a bunch of photos. It won't let you engage in that behavior it'll force you to download the app and i'm not going to download the app so it's it's very self-regulating in that way which is great and i'll just tell you i want to add something to that which is like i've not had social on my phone for four months uh, yeah three or four months yeah uh, no downside that i'm aware of like my, my life has continued i'm not dead i haven't lost all my friends like things things are great so i, I i've been convinced that it is i don't have a social media deficiency no so, blood tests have turned up anything funny so your downloads are not down or anything like that I mean, everything's good it's going to be the biggest month. I think this month will probably be the biggest month in the history of the podcast. So no, nothing is, <laughs> nothing's down. <laughs> yeah, if that's what it takes, I'm going to quit social media too. I'd be happy to do that. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's just like every, everyone's pissing in the pool. It's not very much fun anymore. Social media. I mean, we're both quote unquote influencers, right? And people have this false belief that. You know, if I say go buy my book, or if I say go buy Tim's book, or if I say go buy, I don't know, lipstick, all of a sudden millions of people buy lipstick books or whatever. I wish that yeah. were true. It's not so true yeah. anymore. Maybe it's true for you. It's not true for me. No, uh, I, I think social is very uh, overvalued. Unless that's your career, right, where yeah. you're an Instagram influencer and you get paid whatever 70 100 grand per promotional post which is which happens right then fantastic i mean i, I remember i spoke to this guy who had a multi-million dollar business built on facebook pages and i asked him what it felt like and he said i feel like i have the most profitable mcdonald's on the world built on top of an active volcano and what he meant by that was <laughs> one algorithm change and you're you're roadkill yeah Right, like yeah. your entire business is 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 predicated on organic reach that could be removed at any time. Wouldn't let me sleep well at night. So, I'd say email email list. Build your email list, folks. 
That's okay. the way to go. That's good advice. Going a little bit deeper in podcasting. A lot of podcasters listen to my podcasts, um, and I would like to know the answer to this question. So how do you grow a podcast? I will give some answers, but I, I don't want to create the mistaken impression that I know exactly how the podcast has grown. But I would say there are a few things that come to mind. Number one is pick a format that is dead simple. Pick a format that you are confident you can do 100 episodes of before you quit because the podcasting elephant graveyard is full of three to five episode podcasts where like Jimmy and Wisconsin decides that he's going to make the next This American Life and like dies under the crushing weight of trying to build something that is is like a lot of things. It's so elegant and beautiful in the listening experience that you think it might be beautiful and elegant in the editing process. And that's just not true. You like go to the, go to the end of this American life and listen to the credits. Like unless you have an army of people to help you don't try to be this American life. So figuring out something that makes you excited, figure out a, a subject matter that also gives you some breadth. So, so format and subject matter, simplicity and format and some degree of breadth in options for subject matter, I think is really important, right? If I had started the four hour work week podcast, uh oh, right? My options for interview subjects, my options, they're really narrow. And there's something to be said for that, right? So a counter argument would be, hey, look at say the bigger pockets guys who are really, really good. And you might niche into real estate and go an inch wide and like a thousand miles deep. That That's an alt alternate strategy. But you have to pick a strategy that isn't just successful for podcasts in some abstract general way, that it's, it is successful and sustainable for you. So if you, you have the perfect strategy because you've done the market research and you're like, what the market needs is a, a podcast isolated on dyslexic pets and you don't give a shit about dyslexic <laughs> pets, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what the market says. You're never going to make it because there are people like me or like you who actually enjoy what they're doing. And they're like, yeah, I could do this forever. I could do two of these a week forever. And you're just, you're not going to beat somebody who has that type of staying power and enthusiasm, which is very easy to detect or not detect. So th those would be two. The third would be, at least as far as I'm concerned, optimize for interesting content and compelling content, not celebrity guests. And this might seem counterintuitive because there are people who have taken the opposite approach. And you might say, hold on a second, though. Like, look at Joe Rogan and look at right. Dax Shepard and like having these huge guests on helps them. And my answer would be like, my answer would be, yes, it helps them. And they are native to that environment. These are people they know. They live in that world. So it is both sustainable and interesting for them. But for people who are not in the LA or entertainment ecosystem to try to get celebrities, it is massively time consuming. It, it is possible. It can happen. But it takes fucking forever. And even, even for me, to get some of these major celebrities on the podcast, I mean, you're talking about a year or two. Just what? to get it done, yeah. Like, because like who takes a year I'm to not, get on your? I'm podcast. not going to mention. I'm not going to mention names, but like multiple guests have taken that long because they have, they have managers, they have agents, they have publicists, and then they have lawyers, and you got to deal oftentimes with every single one of those people, and wow. they're just and they're 
all those people want to stick their thumbprints on everything to show how much hard work they're doing on behalf of their client who's paying them $20,000 retainer a month or whatever it is. It's exhausting. And some of those interviews turn out really well, but if you're just getting started, you're going to have, or forget about just getting started. If you have a small operation, that is a lot of cycles and it's expensive, right? I mean, I spend money on lawyers because they're like, yeah, we're going to eviscerate your release. And I'm like, I, this is a standard release. Like we need this so that we're not exposed uh, from a liability perspective. And like that could take forever. So just to prove a point real quick. So if you look at my, if you look at my top 50 episodes, I would say half of them are names in terms of guests. Most people would not recognize. Still, even in audio, this is certainly true in text, but even in audio, like if the episode is really good and you as the host are excited about it, it can travel. It doesn't have to be somebody yeah. super famous. I think the most popular episode I've had is uh, Stephen Wolfram, who is yeah. a physicist. And I would have never, ever, you know, yeah. I thought it would be Jane Goodall or someone who's dropped dead famous. By the way, let the record show that I got you Jane Goodall in like 24 hours, right? I didn't need you two did. years. To... <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, that oh, was, it was that my was very, pleasure. Yeah, very kind <laughs> intro. She was great. And uh, she'd been on my list for a long time. And a lot of it also, let me just, this is actually brings up another thing, which is part of the reason that worked is that she had a movie coming out like two or three weeks later, right? So don't chase guests who are not in their promotional cycle if that's how they operate. There are some people who will be on a podcast anytime if it's of interest to them. There are many, many other people who will not do any media whatsoever unless they are going into a promotional cycle where they're going to, they're going to do media. And so don't bang your head against a wall trying to get someone on your show if they're just off the playing field, which is going to be true for a lot of folks. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a reporter from the New York Times named Dion Searcy. And she's the one who went to West Africa and did the whole Boko Haram. I mean, <laughs> my God, the story she had. I asked her for tips about conducting great interviews. And she said, one thing you should always do is at the end of the interview, you ask your subject, is there anything that I should have asked you? Okay. Uh, so, yeah. so Tim, I'm asking you that now. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything that you should have asked me? <laughs> I mean, should, should, is a, should is a strong word. I mean, if, if, if I were to throw a question at myself, the first thing that came to mind was like, what do you care more about now that you cared less about or not at all about say when you wrote the four hour work week and the answer Excellent. could be the that's a great you question uh, the answer could be the, the opposite too like what do you care less about right but in terms of caring more about i would just say uh, psychological and emotional health so being fit not just financially not just physically not just cognitively in terms of learning capacity but really having an awareness of the flow of your emotions and not compartmentalizing. So having the 
fluency with feelings so that you can allow things to flow through you. And first and foremost, having some degree of self-acceptance and self-love, which I didn't have for decades. I was just a, I was just a competitor and that seems self-indulgent and end up being very destructive to have that lens. So books like Radical Acceptance, practices like mindfulness through, let's say, the Waking Up app with Sam Harris, talking to professionals and doing training like heart rate variability training to be aware of when my system is overreacting because of a lot of childhood experiences that wired me to be hyperreactive. All of that for me has ended up being the, the foundational piece upon which everything else can be built. And you can avoid that for a long time, but you can't avoid it forever. And if you do try to avoid it forever, I think you end up being very, in the best cases, professionally successful, but personally unfulfilled and often miserable. Would you say that this, this aha that you have about this kind of wellness, if a skeptic said, well, yeah, if, if I were Tim Ferriss and I had the world's most popular podcast and I was printing money, yeah, I could be thinking about wellness and mindfulness and my heart rate. But did this cause you to be successful? Or once you were successful, then you had the luxury of being able to focus on this? Yeah, it's 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 impossible to say. I, I think that certainly my drive to compete at all costs has has helped a lot of the professional successes to manifest financially. But I also know people who never had that demon on their back who have more money than I do. So I don't think it's I so right I don't think it's a prerequisite. I don't think being a masochist and priding yourself on how much pain you can tolerate is a prerequisite because there are so many counterexamples of people I know who don't have that kind of shadow behind them at all times. So I, I don't I don't think so. And I would say also that if you look at my experience, let's just say in the last five or six years when I've taken this very seriously, um, granted, one could argue that I'd already hit kind of escape velocity because I had successful books and everything else. But like in the last five or six years, I've done more than I could have imagined, even with my previous pride and pain tolerance and work capacity and ability to focus. Only since I've begun to accept these parts of myself that I divorced, right? People can look up IFS, which is parts work, internal family systems, stuff like that. Only since I started paying attention to these things have all of these other pieces fallen into place where I am, ach I am achieving more with more ease. That didn't happen until five or six years ago. And I, I, it's, it may not be totally causal, but it's completely correlated with this type of doing this type of work myself. So that that may be uh maybe a dissatisfying answer but no. i think i think it's very helpful i think it's very helpful because i've also seen friends who beat the shit out of themselves all the time and view that as their secret to success who have actually agreed to experiment with this stuff and figure out that there are gears between park and six gear right like they can actually <laughs> use the rest of the transmission and none of them have complained about losing their edge professionally they're 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 just they're no longer swinging at every pitch 
that's exhausting. Like swinging at every pitch, like it's going to be a home run and missing 90% of them, but swinging as hard as you can. That's exhausting. So I, I feel, I feel good. I feel good about it. I, I yeah, I, th- I think that it can help with everything else. To use a surfing analogy, you don't paddle for every wave. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I hope you found Tim's interview as remarkable, insightful, and funny as I did. He is truly one of a kind. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. My thanks to Peg Fitzpatrick and Jeff C., who are also each one of a kind. Until the next episode, remember to wash your hands, maintain a good distance from other people, don't go into crowded restaurants and bars, wear a mask, and trust in Tony Fauci. It's so hard to get subscribers. I don't want any of you getting sick and dying. Mahalo and aloha. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. This is Remarkable People.